0: looking forward to our equipping hour. We're going to get, uh, started on American time, nine o'clock. And, uh, um, cause we uh, want to do teaching and discussion. So we need to take advantage and use all the time uh, that we have. Thanks for coming back. This is obviously equipping hour. If, uh, this is new to you and you thought you were at the normal worship service. Uh, no, <laughs> you're not. That comes later. This is our equipping hour. And, uh, I like that name, Equipping Hour, actually, uh, because uh, it's a little different than just Teaching Hour. Um, Teaching, equipping, I wonder if you can think of what would be the difference between uh, teaching and equipping. There's not a big difference. Hopefully when you're teaching, you are equipping, but I I like the, the word equipping because you're specifically thinking about how do I help someone learn something so that they can take action? Teaching, I guess, could just almost have a, just information going in sort of idea. But equipping is a little bit of a bigger word maybe in that it assumes you're preparing someone to do something. And uh, that is what we're trying to do here. Uh, You are being equipped for a task. That's why we're taking our time on Sunday mornings. And uh, I think that's important to remember as we're getting together week after week, because this is not just for the purpose of learning more information and passing a test or something, but instead is for the purpose of helping you and really all of us be equipped for doing what God has called us to do. And so uh, right now we're talking about discipleship. This is one of our uh, big missions as a church. And we're talking about discipleship for a couple of reasons. Uh, First of all, because we're starting something called uh, T-cells in, well, sometime in February, hopefully, but we obviously can't begin them until we know what they are and and why why they are and what it means to be involved in one of them, and so that's uh, one of the reasons why we're doing this, to get ready for that. Uh, But, you know, we have been kind of starting some new things here at the church, T-cells, life groups, and we have these different names that are going around, and you might be wondering, what are, we, what are we talking about? <laughs> and here's what we're talking about, basically. Imagine a guy comes to Cornerstone Bible Church, and he is uh, fresh. He's uh, uh, new to the church, and we want to be of help to him, obviously. That's part of why we're here as a church. We want to help him grow spiritually. So what do we do? How do we help him grow? Uh, first of all, one thing that we do is we ask, is he a Christian? Because you uh, really can't grow if you're not a Christian, dead men don't grow. And so uh, part of why we exist as a church is to help people evaluate their confession of faith. And then if he's uh, not a Christian, we share the gospel and we keep sharing the gospel. And if he is uh, a Christian, we come alongside him and we uh, help him identify himself as a member of the church. And so that's part of what membership is. Um, He's saying, I'm committing myself to this church And so really being discipled here in this church and this church is committing itself to me. And um, specifically, I'm here to grow and I'm here to help others grow. Now what? So he's a member of the church. Uh, Well, if he's gonna grow, obviously there are ordinarily, there are means that God uses. So we sometimes would talk about the means of grace. Uh, And so there are instruments that God uses normally to grow us. And one of those would be teaching and worship and communion and things like that. Another would be fellowship with other believers. Another would be uh, close friendships. And another would be service, actually serving Jesus with your gifts. And of course, trials. Trials are a big part of how God uh, grows you. But that's not really part of our job as a church, to make your life more difficult. But the other four are. They're, They're they're part of our responsibility as a church. And um, these are the four ordinary means that God uses to grow us. You might think of them as uh, ingredients in the recipe for a growing, growing Christian. And uh, we wanna do our best to provide you opportunities for all four. But specifically, lately we've been emphasizing fellowship and close friendship. And so, what do I mean by fellowship? There, there's a lot. But basically, Christians in your church that you love and you spend time with like really good family. And then friendship, close friendship, somebody who knows you, somebody you trust, somebody you uh, meet with on a regular basis, somebody who uh, you open up your heart with, somebody who helps you apply the Bible to your heart and to your life and keeps you accountable, and somebody who gives you an example of how to follow Jesus. That's friendship, close friendship. And the reality is you need all four of these to grow, and yet you could uh, possibly go about getting some of those ingredients in different ways. But one way we're trying to help you enjoy fellowship and pursue close friendships is by putting certain structures in place as a church. And so first of all, there's life groups, and then uh, the focus with that would be fellowship, a group of uh, church members you eat meals with on a regular twice-a-month basis for the purpose of enjoying one another and sharing life together. And then, second of all, T-cells. And the focus there would be a friendship, accountability, example. And so this would be a group of like two, three, four individuals you meet with on a semi-regular basis for the purpose of being good biblical friends to one another. And uh, obviously, all of that could happen without those structures being put in place. And I think that's important to say over and over again. All of that can happen without those structures. But uh, I don't think they always happen organically in a lot of people's lives on a regular basis. And that's why we're putting the structures in place. But the structures are not the thing. I don't know how many times I can, I just need to say that, put that in bold print. Could you eat at someone's house twice a month without actually knowing each other and enjoying real fellowship? Yeah, you really could, you really could. And that would be a miss. That would like completely miss the point. And could you have a, a a a group of couple guys that you meet with and you don't help each other grow? Definitely, yeah, definitely. Somebody was telling me even just before I came in about some guys they met with whose lives were falling apart and they never said anything. And that is those guys' responsibility. They really missed the opportunity. Could you have a group of close friends you meet with on a regular basis and you really help each other grow without being part of a T cell or a structure here? Yeah, of course, obviously you can. And I would be happy with that because these are just structures that we're putting in place that we think can help and the structures themselves might or might not work, but what has to work, and this really is the bigger reason why we're doing this class, is that we need to be a church with a family culture and a culture of uh, discipleship. And this class, this equipping hour is focused on how. So that's what we're doing the next couple months. In this class, we're talking about a process to follow as you seek to help others change and become more like Jesus. So I think I, I just worked hard at explaining what life groups are and what T cells are. If you have questions about that and it doesn't seem clear to you, please, Ask me later. I'll keep doing it on a regular basis to try to explain. But if it doesn't make sense to you, just just ask. But um, what we're doing here is talking about how to help someone else become more like Jesus. And uh, another term for this is gospel care. So we're having you read the book, and also I'm doing a little bit of teaching. And the book that we've given you to read is uh, called Loving Messy People, and it's a it's a A good book about helping people change, and I like his definition of gospel care. He says, gospel care is the God-exalting, grace-saturated art of loving another person through patiently knowing, sacrificially serving, truthfully speaking, and consistently applying the gospel in order to help them become more like Jesus. So that right there is what's supposed to happen in T-cells or in our close friendships with one another. Um, It's nice that he doesn't say gospel care is knowing the answer to every single problem. And he doesn't say gospel care is being someone else's super spiritual guru. But actually what he says is loving another person (laughs) through patiently knowing, sacrificially serving, and truthfully speaking, and consistently applying the gospel. that's what we're going for, gospel care. But how do we do that? This is like training for that, for gospel care and T-cells. And we're doing that training in two ways. One is reading the book and discussing, and then I'm teaching. And I'm not really teaching on the book, but I am teaching on a subject that complements the book. And we're doing that basically because we're trying to go faster. So we're trying to uh, double the amount of information that you can get in a uh, short amount of time. So we'll see how that works. But we've talked about the why of discipleship, and the what, and today, and the next few weeks we're going to be talking about this question of how. What do you do if you want to make an impact on someone else? And uh, you can see where where he begins is through patiently knowing. Gospel care is the God-exalting, grace-saturated art of loving another person through patiently knowing. And that's really where we're going to begin. We're going to talk about the importance of developing a relationship. So first step build the relationship. First step, build the relationship. If you read, uh, there's a really great book. It's worth reading in addition to Loving Messy People, but uh, Paul Tripp's book, Instruments in the Redeemer's Hands, begins with uh, knowing the person when he talks about the process of discipleship. Or if you get another great book on um, introduction to biblical counseling, uh, there's a, a, a section in that book on methods of biblical counseling, and he begins with involvement, involvement, all pretty much saying, the same thing, first step, build the relationship. And because this is so important, and actually a little bit hard, I wanna uh, show you that it's important, prove that relationship is important, that's first, and then second, I wanna talk about some steps you can take to developing the kind of relationship that actually um, moves someone else forward, or helps them move forward. but today, mostly, I want to show you that building a relationship is important because it's not necessarily a given. There are lots of people out there that can help you in certain ways without building a relationship. So if I go to the mechanic, I, he doesn't need a relationship with me to fix my car. It's not like my car's not fixed, and I, you know, I'm like, well, it's because we didn't build a relationship. Or if I go to the doctor, I'm not sure that I need a, like a deep relationship with the doctor for him to really help me. Um, if I go to get coffee, the baristas sometimes act like they want a relationship. And I'm like, that's not really what I'm here for, actually. I just want the coffee. I'm doing, I'm doing fine. Um, so why do we emphasize relationships when it comes to discipleship and helping others change? And we do. We really do. I used to teach a, a class on introduction to biblical counseling, and we would say one of the core convictions to truly biblical counseling is the conviction that biblical counseling is relational in nature and orientation. And I want to I want you to understand why we say that because some of us I think we might be tempted to think the relation part think of the relationship part as the part we kind of want to get past. So it's kind of like preachers and illustrations. A lot of times when you talk to expository preachers about illustrations they don't like trying to think of illustrations um, because they don't think that they're doing anything with illustrations and they'll sometimes sort of talk like, uh, I just know that people like illustrations so I'm going give them an illustration to keep them interested or something like that to make them happy. And actually illustrations, well done, are doing something. But some people are like that with relationships actually. They're like, this is not really doing anything and know, us sitting here and kind of smiling at each other. Um, If I could, I would just dump truth on them. And, you know, it would be a lot faster. Um, But I have to build the relationship so that they can listen when I dump truth on them. And I'm not wanting to minimize truth, obviously, because we know the Bible emphasizes truth. And we place a huge value on communicating truth. But what I want to stress is that the Bible also emphasizes the importance of communicating truth in the context of loving Carrying relationships, and obviously I don't have a lot of time, but I want to show you one proof of that. One proof we need to work at relationships, and then next week we'll talk about how to work on growing relationships. But one proof, uh, so that we have time for discussion afterwards. But one proof, we need to make you need to make a priority out of pursuing relationships, and I want you to go away saying building relationships is important. And that proof just has to do with the way God works with us. So this is going to be like a big picture biblical theology of relationship and we'll enjoy this for a minute but this is important looking at the way God works is important because as disciples we are representatives of God so Paul Tripp I told you he wrote a great book on counseling he goes to 2 Corinthians 5 he uses the idea there of us being ambassadors and listen listen to how he puts it he says what should we do to be part of God's work in the lives of others the apostle Paul uses the word ambassadors to explain The job of an ambassador is to represent someone or something. Everything he does and says must intentionally represent a leader who's not physically present. His calling is not limited to 40 hours a week, to certain state events, or to times of international crisis. He's always the king's representative. He stands in the place of the king wherever he is or whatever he's doing. His relationships are not primarily driven by his own happiness. He decides to go places and do things because they will help him faithfully represent the king. His actions, character, and words embody the king who is not present. Paul says that God has called us all to function as his ambassadors. In other words, as disciples, we're speaking on behalf of someone else and represent someone else. And so obviously his priorities should be our priorities. And one of God's priorities is, is relationship. God is a relational God. He doesn't want us merely to just know some facts. If you look at the way he works with us, God wants to have a relationship with us which, of course, is a stunning thing to say uh, and uh, something that sometimes people take in the wrong way because they think, yeah, of course God wants to have a relationship with me. They think of themselves as kind of the center of the universe and uh, even everything, even God centers in on them in their minds. But God's big, and so obviously his priorities are bigger than just you. But at the same time, if that's one mistake to think, Of course, God should want to have a relationship with me because I'm the center of the universe. It's possible to go the opposite direction and make the opposite mistake and to start acting as if God were distant and he doesn't care about you because God does want to have a relationship with us. Um, I mean, and I think it's good for us to just be like, wait, is that true? (laughs) Because it's really a big thing To say? Why is it a big thing to say? Well, you just think about who God is. We're talking about someone who holds the universe in the palm of his hand. To whom will you liken God, Isaiah says. So, how do we know God wants to have a relationship with us? The easiest way to see that is just to think about the storyline of Scripture. So, think about the story of Scripture. And you go back and you look at the biggest moments in the biblical story. If you go all the way back to the beginning first, God creates the world in Genesis 1. Why? Well, to glorify himself, of course, but as we look at Genesis 1 and 2, part of the reason, especially you look at the Garden of Eden, part of the reason is to enter into a special relationship with us. And we see that in Genesis 2 where God takes Adam, puts him in the garden, where he can enjoy God's special presence. And there are many scholars who would make the argument that Adam's job really was to expand the borders of the garden so that the whole world was like a, was like a temple where we would enjoy God's special presence. In Genesis 3-8, you get this beautiful picture of God as walking in the garden in the cool of the day, pursuing relationship with people. And of course, Genesis 1 and 2, um, protology is eschatology. So that means when you look at Genesis 1 and 2, the beginning of the world, you're also getting a small picture of the end of the world. And uh, this is where everything's going. God, man, enjoying fellowship together. That's a picture of where God wants this world to head. And in a sense, the whole rest of the Bible tells the story of how God is restoring the relationship that we've broken as humans. You go on reading in Genesis, and we're just enjoying for a moment, getting the feel that like we need to be relational people. (laughs) Because we look at God, he's a relational God. So hopefully you know this, but just enjoy it. And feel a sense of its importance. You go on in Genesis, you read about these things called covenants. Covenant is really the um, backbone of the story scripture tells. What's a covenant? A covenant is like a contract, but it's better because at the heart of a covenant is not only a promise to do something, it's a relationship. The design of creation shows us God's a relational God, but so does the fact that after man sinned, he enters into covenant. The purpose of a covenant is to Either make a relationship where there wasn't one, or to like a husband and a wife, or to restore a relationship that has been broken. And so if you think about the promise God made to Abraham, and I'm just assuming that you know many of these passages, but a big part of the promise that God makes to Abraham was, I will be with you. I will be with you. So it wasn't just, I'm going to give you land. It wasn't just, I'm going to give you descendants. It was relationships, 14 a relationship. Fourteen times God says that to Abraham and his descendants in Genesis 12 to 50. I will be with you 104 times God says that in the Bible. If you go on to Exodus, we usually like the first part of Exodus. That's the exciting part of the book. And then our Bible reading plan usually starts faltering there in the second half of Exodus. Uh, once you get to like a little past Exodus 20, we usually can make it to Exodus 20, but you're getting into like 21, 22, 23, 24, you're starting to slow down, and then especially where you get into all that talk about the tabernacle. But the first part of Exodus is for the second part of Exodus. <laughs> so that great rescue in the beginning is to set you up for what is uh, really even more significant in a sense. All, it's, it's God coming to dwell with his people. All these details about the tabernacle, is actually the most exciting part of Exodus, because why is there this tabernacle? It's because God wants to dwell with his people. And Exodus actually ends with God moving in. You know how it ends? It says, then the cloud covered the tent of meeting, and the glory of the Lord filled the tabernacle. So God didn't just rescue his people to rescue them. He rescued them so that he could live with them. And that is part of why we have all those laws in the next book, Leviticus, because it's like, how do you live with God and not die? And so we read Leviticus and we're like, whoa, this is too much. But Exodus ended on an incomplete note, actually, if you look at it. Exodus chapter 40, verse 35. You can write it down and look it up later. I'm trying to fly so we can get Isaiah up here. But Moses was not able to enter the tent of meeting because the cloud settled on it and the glory of the Lord filled the tabernacle. Leviticus 1.1 opens. The Lord called Moses and spoke to him from the tent of meeting. So God moves in and Moses is not able to go into the tent of meeting. Numbers, though, Moses is outside. Numbers 1-1 opens very differently. The Lord spoke to Moses in the wilderness of Sinai in the tent of meeting. So now he's in. He's gone from outside to in. And what's happened? Leviticus. Laws and sacrifice. The purpose of Leviticus is so that we could enjoy, Israel could enjoy this relationship with God. When God talks about his plans for Israel, you know what he says, Exodus 29, 45 to 46. I will dwell among the people of Israel and will be their God. If they would fulfill the covenant, it was going to be a mini reversal of the curse. Leviticus 26, 11, and 12, one of my favorite passages. Uh, God says, if you'll just obey, here's what will happen. I will walk among you and be your God, and you shall be my people. I will walk among you. It's like, I want us to get back into the garden, God's saying. God is, uh, remember when I walked in the garden in the cool of the day? That's why I'm doing all this. God is pursuing relationships, so he's a transcendent God. He is way above us. There's there's God and there's not God. He's different than us, better than us, and yet he wants to reveal himself to us in a special way, not because anything in us forces him to. He doesn't need us. We can't bring anything to the table that adds to him in any way. Instead, it's solely because he wants to. Even looking back at Israel, we're talking about God wanting to dwell with them, but why was he going to dwell with Israel? It wasn't just for them. Exodus 19, he says, if you obey my voice and keep my covenant, you shall be to me a kingdom of priests. And what do priests do? They represent God. And who would they represent God to? The nations. God wants a relationship not just with Israel, but with the nations. And of course, we know Israel failed, but that wasn't the end. God had a plan to make this relationship happen, and these prophets arise later in the Bible and they start explaining how God's plan is still on track and they talk about a new heavens and a new earth and all these great things that God's going to do. But again, part of the great purpose of all that was relationship. I love how Jeremiah puts it. This is the covenant I will make, declares the Lord. I will put my law within them and I will write it on their hearts and I will be their God and they shall be my people and no longer shall each one teach his neighbor and each his brother saying, know the Lord for they shall all know me. From the least of them to the greatest, declares the Lord. And Isaiah gives us this incredible picture of the future. In Isaiah 2, he says, It shall come to pass in the latter days that the mountain of the house of the Lord shall be established as the highest of the mountains and shall be lifted above the hills, and all the nations shall flow to it. And many people shall come and say, Come, let us go to the mountain of the Lord, to the house of the God of Jacob, that he may teach us his ways and that we may walk in his paths. And I'm saying, this is incredible. This is incredible. To, to think that God's seeking a relationship with us because he's God. That's incredible. But we believe it because we, when we start tracing the storyline of the Bible in the Old Testament, we see where this, where this whole plan is headed. And really, even think about what's happening with Jesus. Obviously, a one way Jesus shows us that God seeks a relationship is just the fact that he reveals God. And so when we look at Jesus, we're seeing what God is like. And what's Jesus doing all the time in the Gospels? He's entering into relationships. But even bigger picture than that, what is happening with Jesus? Who is Jesus? He's God become man. He is God dwelling among us. That's why John 1 says the word became flesh and dwelt among us. That word dwelt is the word tabernacle. It's an echo from the Old Testament. He tabernacled among us. In other words, in Jesus, we find God pursuing people. And this is a big part of the purpose of his work on the cross. It was to make it possible for us to have a peaceful relationship with God. And so many of the terms that describe salvation are relational terms, if you think about it. But especially, there's the high point of salvation, as some describe it. The fact that when we're saved, God adopts us. The fact that God adopts us, this doctrine of adoption, is proof that our God is a relational God. He saved us to bring us into his family. And that's why when we read the Bible and we look at God's the, the descriptions of God's love towards us, his attitude towards us, we see these expressions of stunning love. We don't have to wonder, does God love us? Does God want to have a relationship with us? Because he says he does. In fact, he loves us so much that Paul tells us in Ephesians, we actually need supernatural power to strengthen us so that we can know how much he loves us. That's one of my favorite lines. You'll have to check it out. It's Paul's prayer for the Ephesians, but he's talking about needing supernatural strength. And you're thinking, what do I need supernatural strength for? And in Africa, a lot of times people think, I need supernatural strength for like, poo, poo, you know, doing all kinds of things like that. But Paul's saying, we need supernatural strength just to appreciate how much God loves us. That's Ephesians 3 14 through 19. For this reason, I bow my knees before the Father from whom every family in heaven and on earth is named, that according to the riches of his glory, he may grant you to be strengthened with power through his spirit in your inner being, so that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith, so that you, being rooted and grounded in love, may have strength to comprehend with all the saints what is the breadth and length and height and depth, and to know the love of Christ that surpasses knowledge, that you may be filled with all the fullness of God, which is awesome. And that's part of why he's given us the Holy Spirit. You wonder if relationship matters to God. Do you not know that you are God's temple and that God's spirit dwells in you? God says in 2 Corinthians 6, I will make my dwelling among them and I will be their God and they shall be my people. That's us. We're experiencing a special relationship with God. That's part of why he saved us, to dwell with us. And if we fast forward to the end of history and we look at the goal of all that God's doing in history in salvation in us, we read Revelation 21, 1 to 4, And death shall be no more. Neither shall there be mourning, nor crying, nor pain anymore, for the former things have passed away." If you wonder, is God a relational God, you should think of that picture of God wiping away every tear from their eyes. God is a relational God. The Bible shouts that from beginning to end. There are so many proofs. He cares about relationships, which is one reason we're saying, as disciples, we need to be big about developing relationships. This is not just like an add-on. In fact, Paul puts it like this in Ephesians 5.1. He says, therefore, be imitators of God as beloved children. And that's a command. It doesn't matter what personality you are. It doesn't matter what your temperament is like. We are trying to be like God. And specifically, uh, Paul says, that means we need to walk in love as Christ loved us and gave himself up for us. So discipleship and counseling that doesn't care deeply about people and entering into loving relationships is not biblical it's not an accurate representation of god and so that's that's one reason we need to pursue a relationship this is not just about dumping truth on someone and being their answer person and the reason i'm emphasizing this uh, right now is just because it's hard just telling somebody the truth is hard enough right (laughs) because you have to make sure you know the truth, you have to be courageous, so doing that's hard, but you add relationships, and that's really hard, because most of us are comfort seekers. We love to be comfortable, and it is honestly way easier, a million times easier, to try to help people from a distance, by just coming, speaking truth, being hard on them, You know, making a comment maybe underneath their Facebook post, this is so dumb what you said, that's not true, <laughs> that's, and then like, you know, muting them when they start speaking back Um, or just like giving up on people when they don't respond after we told them something. But it's not biblical. It's easier, but it's not biblical. Uh, I mean, it's not how God works. It's not how the Bible says growth typically happens. Obviously, you know, there are different opportunities, different situations, but I'm talking about the general pattern of our life and the way we go about discipling people. Paul Tripp writes it like this, and this will be the last quote here, and then we'll discuss. But he says, I'm deeply persuaded that the foundation for people transforming ministry is love. Love is what drove God to send and sacrifice his son. Love led Christ to subject himself to a sinful world and the horrors of the cross. Love is what causes him to seek and save the lost and to persevere until each of his children is transformed into his image. His love will not rest until all of his children are at his side in glory. Without it, we have no hope personally, relationally, or eternally. This love is not a band-aid attempting to cope with a cancerous world. It is effective and persevering. It is jealous, intent on owning us without competition. It faces the facts of who we are and how we need to change and simply goes to work. Any hope for the problems we face with our own hearts and with the dark and corrupt world is found in the love of the Lord Jesus Christ. This love offers hope to anyone willing to confess sin and cry out for transformation, yet this is where we often get stuck. We want ministry that doesn't demand love, that is, well, so demanding. We don't want to serve others in a way that requires so much personal sacrifice. This line, I think about it all the time. We would prefer to lob grenades of truth into people's lives rather than lay down our lives for them. But this is exactly what Christ did for us. Can we be expected? Can we expect to be called to do anything less? The love of Christ is not only the foundation for our personal help, But our living out that love is our only hope for being effective for Christ with others. Sadly, many of us have forgotten this and we are resounding gong people in symbol clanging relationships. This is a whole lot, there's a whole lot of noise but not much real change, which is what we wanna do in these T cells. We're seeking real change and in our friendships. And how do we do that? How do we help people do do that? The step that we're talking about today and next week is work at developing a relationship. Get involved in their life. And today I hope you can see that one reason that's important is because you're representing God and he is a relational God. And then next week we'll talk a little bit more about how to actually develop that relationship, what we mean by that. And I'll try to be a little more uh, practical and give you uh, some specific ideas of what kind of relationship actually we're talking about. Uh, But for now, uh, Isaiah is gonna come and help us discuss.